Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your willingness to reveal yourself to us perfectly in your son, Jesus Christ, the embodiment of your word. And so, Father, would you please help me this morning to proclaim him as clearly as possible from this text. God, I ask that you would have your way with everyone who is here, Lord, that you'd enable us all to listen, to hear you speaking to us in this text. For the joy of our souls, Father, that you might be glorified above all things. Help us to see and hear your son this morning, Father. Please help me to speak. Please help me to be clear. And I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, says that every word of God proves true. Every single word God has spoken, every single thing that he has said is truth. And everything that God says he will do, God will do. Every promise that he makes, he keeps. And in that way, the Bible is a story. It's one unified story about God's Son, Jesus Christ. This morning in Matthew chapter 1, he traces the ancestry of Jesus Christ on earth, but there's a lot more going on in this text than a genealogy, than a simple matter of keeping records. And I know if you know Matthew 1, or if you have your Bible open and you look there, you think, what could there possibly be for us to hear in a genealogy? In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, the prophet tells us that the zeal of the Lord of hosts is what would guarantee the giving of a son who would be a savior and a king for mankind. The zeal of the Lord of hosts would do that. God sent his son Jesus to us with zeal. It's what he wanted to do, right? It thrills God's soul to redeem sinners. He didn't do it reluctantly. He sent the Holy Spirit to a young girl named Mary, a virgin. She was overshadowed by him and conceived and bore a son and gave birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the hope of all peoples, of all nations. That's Jesus. He is the promise of God kept in person. So the beginning of Matthew is very interesting. When you read those first few chapters, Matthew is retelling the story of the Bible for us because Jesus has come. He's telling us that history is being renewed in Jesus. We have this beautiful story he unfolds where The story of Israel, God's people, is retold through the lens of this Jesus. He's a little baby under the threat of a hateful king that wanted to kill him. So he's whisked away to safety. He's taken to Egypt, but he doesn't remain in bondage there. God calls him out of Egypt, just like he called Israel out of Egypt. And when he comes out, he doesn't pass through the waters of the Red Sea, but he does pass through the waters of baptism. And then he heads into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. Except he doesn't fall there. He doesn't sin there like Israel did. He fulfills all righteousness. He comes down out of the wilderness, the Savior of all mankind. He will go on to fulfill everything God sent him to do. And so Matthew is telling us that with Jesus, something new has come. There's a new beginning here. Hope for us has dawned in the coming of this Jesus into the world. And so the story of humanity is being retold with Jesus as the central character. So Matthew's genealogy here at the beginning of chapter 1 is marking a new beginning in human history for us. It's full of hope and mercy and love and redemption. 
Every word of God has been breathed out by God. This list of names and the names that are here or are not here are all for a reason. To show where he came from is not the only point of this genealogy because it does do that. It does accomplish that. It does show us his earthly line. But the main point here is not that. It's not the main point of this genealogy just to trace the ancestry. God is sovereign. He always does what He says He will do. And He will always keep His promises. He never fails. And the story of Jesus is the most beautiful story in human history. It's full of hope for mankind. There's no other story like it. Hope has dawned in the coming of Jesus. We have a chance to remember that every year because we forget it in the grind of everyday life, don't we? We forget just what it is exactly that happened much more than just another year passing is true this morning. Let's be reminded this Christmas of what is real now that Jesus has come. So let's read this passage and find our peace and joy this morning in it. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab and Amminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations... From Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The first and the last verses of this genealogy. I know it's a lot of names, but the first and the last verses are essential. Let me read verse 1 and verse 17 one more time. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham... And skipping down to 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What is Matthew doing here? What's his purpose? I think he's doing three things in particular this morning. First, all the other ancestors notwithstanding... Notice how he starts here. He wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now that's strange when you think about it because David is a descendant of Abraham. 
So any descendant of David is automatically a descendant of Abraham. So why highlight that? Why say what is obvious? Because the covenant promises of God, all that God intended to do, came mainly to those two men, Abraham and David. In 2 Samuel 7, David was promised there would always be a ruler, always a descendant on his throne. His were the glory days of Israel. Him and Solomon really, the glory days of Israel. But the promises to Abraham stand out as well because the story here is not just about a nation in Matthew 1. It's not just ethnic. Something huge is happening when Jesus comes into the world. All the covenant promises, the spiritual blessings for the world were given to Abraham. In Genesis 12, long before David ever existed, long before the Jews were ever in captivity in Egypt, or before Israel was ever a nation, God came to a man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and promised him, through you, I'm going to bless every single nation on the earth. Matthew is telling us, he's trying to tell us, that this Jesus, in him, that promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. So he isn't just royal here in Matthew 1. He's a redeemer in Matthew 1. And for all the other people in his line, Matthew wants us to know, listen, this Jesus I'm about to tell you the story of, before you know anything about him, you need to know he's of the stock of Abraham and he's of the stock of David, the two most important people in the history of Israel. It's through the covenant that God made with Abraham that this blessing comes to every nation in the world, which is why... The spiritual aspect of how this genealogy is set up and who he chooses to include and who he chooses to leave out is so significant. The second significant thing Matthew does in his genealogy is to include women. They didn't usually include women in genealogies. Not usually. They trace the ancestry through the Father. Rarely would you see a female in a genealogy of Hebrews especially. Now, they are there sometimes. First and second Chronicles have them in a few places. But for the most part, it's very rare to do that. So you would think it even less likely that you would break convention if you were trying to show the ethnicity, the line of the Savior of the world. Why break from what is normal if that's what you're trying to show, if that's what you're trying to prove? Especially if you look at the women he did include when you consider the women he left out. That's what's so wonderful. The great matriarchs of the faith here, they aren't the women that he includes in this genealogy. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, they aren't there. They aren't the women he included. They're not in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. If you were going to include women... Surely you would include Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and her descendants. Surely you'd include the mother of the patriarchs of the twelve tribes. But they aren't here. He leaves them out. And then he puts in all Gentile women. In the descent of the Messiah on earth, there are four Gentile women. And even more so, all four are women whose names are scandalous. Tamar. You remember what? Tamar did, right? The, 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 the Bible puts most movies and TV to shame in its raw authenticity, right? Remember what Tamar did? She dressed like a prostitute to fool her father-in-law to guarantee an heir. She dressed like a prostitute. Do you remember Rahab? She was a prostitute. She was in the city of Jericho. 
and she's in the genealogy of the Savior of the world. Ruth, Ruth worshipped pagan gods in Moab. You know where Moab came from? You remember the mess with Lot when he loses his wife? They go into a cave with his two daughters and they're terrified there won't be an heir so they get their father drunk and it gets really messed up. Right? That's her. And the sons of that were Moab and Abin, two, two, Moab and Ammon, two mortal enemies of Israel. Ruth is a descendant of that. She comes from that and she's in the genealogy of Jesus. And then the unnamed here, wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, she was a Gentile woman, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. If you're going to try to highlight how important or great someone was, would you remind everyone of the biggest stain on their whole life? Wouldn't you make sure you knew all the scandals and got rid of them before presenting your genealogy to the public? You would try to leave stuff like this out. Instead, he says, do you remember that lady that David took advantage of because he was the king and he had her husband killed? Let's put her in there. Let's make sure everybody remembers that. So, four Gentile women, all surrounded in scandal. That's amazing. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. Four Gentile women with scandalous pasts are highlighted in his line. God just does not do things the way that we would do them, beloved. He does not avoid scandal. Matthew is very stylized here. He's very deliberate. And I doubt anyone in Israel realized, I, I, I don't know that, but I doubt immediately what Matthew reveals here, that it was through Gentiles that God's purpose for Israel was fulfilled. They were included all along. They were there. They were a part. Three stanzas, 14 generations each. From the Old Testament list that we have, we know that Matthew is excluding some names here. That's totally normal in a Hebrew genealogy to say, I want to highlight the line of descent through these links in particular. I want to show these names in particular. If you forget that, Matthew's genealogy can be confusing. The word ancestor here would have made it a little more clear than the word father to outsiders, but not to a Hebrew who understood how he was constructing his genealogy. The physical line of descent for Jesus is solid. Verse 17 is where Matthew says, now, here's what I just did. So he tells you, I set it up this way. I did this in three stages. I think this is the third and last significant thing that Matthew has done here, at least that we'll look out, look at this morning. Why Abraham? Remember, the great covenantal promise of God came specifically through Abraham. Then you have David. So he's going very high. He, he, he is highlighting very high, very good names, revered names. The greatest patriarch, the greatest king. So just stop there, right? And we've got it. Just stop there. Bring in the closest ancestors, sure. But don't bring in the exile to Babylon. Right? That's the lowest point in Judah's history. Why remind everybody of that? What does the exile tell us? The exile took place when Israel and Judah were divided between the northern and southern kingdoms, right? The Babylonians came in, deported all these Jews out of Jerusalem. The cities burned to the ground. They take them into what you and I know as Iraq to Babylon. They became prisoners. They lose everything. When in the history of Israel and Judah did that take place? Well, it was way after Abraham um, was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. It was way after the exodus from Egypt. 
It was way after Sinai and the giving of the law, way after the priesthood was established, way after David, way after the temple. All those things happen. All the great history of Israel and Judah happen. And then what happens to the people of God at the end of it all? They end up back in the exact same place everything started. Back in Babylon. Back in Ur of the Chaldeans. Where God first called Abraham out. Only now they're in captivity there. The whole people have come back to where everything started and now they're in captivity. Israel and Judah failed to keep the covenant. But what's worse is not the exile here. That would be bad enough. If we pull all the way back, what's worse is that their history finally ends when Israel and Judah will conspire with the Romans to crucify their own Messiah, saying, we have no king but Caesar, and his blood be on us and on our children. What is Matthew's story telling us? What are we supposed to be reminded of? That mankind is utterly hopeless. We will never be able to save ourselves. We will never be able to get it right. We will never be able to maintain fellowship with God on our own, in our own strength, with our own good intentions, with our own effort. We will always be strangers and rebels. And so if God's ultimate purpose in moving among human beings was to come to them and say, alright, here's what I want you to do and who I want you to be, and if you can do that, if you can be that, if you can finally measure up and obey this law, I'll be your God and you'll be my covenant people. But if you don't do that, I'll take everything from you and I'll reject you. If that's the whole story, if that's what is laid on mankind every generation, there is no hope for mankind. None. There's no chance we'll end up God's people. We'll end up right back where we started. Hopeless. No matter how far or long we go trying to, trying or thinking we can do it, we'll end up completely separated from God as exiled enemies. What the genealogy is trying to tell you is that that is not the end of the story. Jesus Christ is the end of the story. Redemption is the end of God's story. We need a savior. And this God gave one. Remember what Israel and Judah had, beloved, in the beginning. A cloud visible by day, a fire by night leading them. God came down and gave them a written code through angels, 613 laws, so they could be sure to get it right. He was with them. They defeated armies ten times their size by miracles all around them, and they still couldn't do it. They still couldn't hold the line, couldn't obey enough, couldn't stay committed enough. We're completely dead inside without Jesus. We're completely broken. And it doesn't matter how clear the way is. It doesn't matter what steps are written down. It doesn't matter. We need a Savior. We cannot help Ourselves. And this genealogy shows us that God will not leave us alone. It shows us that our failures will not be ultimately what defines us. Jesus is at the end of this list. We can be remade this morning. We can literally be born again and have our lives defined by another name who overshadows our name and this record. The name is Jesus. 
Everything that we were, that we've done or failed to do can all be thrown in the ocean. God will forgive you of all of it and welcome you into His family. Listen through immorality here and rape and deception and murder. Through all of that, God brought the Savior. Don't think He can't redeem you. Don't think He can't redeem you. Beloved, God is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of your past. God doesn't get embarrassed when you come into the kingdom. He doesn't dislike you. He isn't going to disown you. He loves you in zeal, with passion. He sent His Son to save you. And it doesn't matter how dirty or how rotten your past is. Your past might embarrass self-righteous Christians. It doesn't embarrass Jesus. It is His pleasure to save people who don't deserve it. It doesn't matter how messed up or how clean your past is. Did you know that? For some of us, the wickedness of our past doesn't really grip us because we tend to measure sins and say these are the things that God is really serious about, that God really hates. I haven't done those things. I've tried my best. I've made a few mistakes. And so we think that like there are levels. Well, He isn't as upset with me as He is with other people when the reality is that every millisecond of denying God the praise that He is due, every millisecond of that is worth an eternity of punishment. We have to understand this. That's why hell is an eternal place of conscious torment. Because there's never a point where you've paid enough where you suffered enough to undo going against a holy God. Like, there's no, like, like, well, I, I've been in hell for, for 60,000 years. Surely that is covered. No, no, no. It will never cover. God is infinitely holy. Infinitely. Completely. Like, there, there's, there's no, like, work you can put in to undo what it is to be His enemy. This is what Jesus has come to save us from. The holy wrath of His own Father. We have to understand this. And this is what Jesus has done. This is how good Jesus is. It doesn't matter if you deny God the praise of which He is worthy by worshiping drugs or by worshiping your own goodness. The scandal in the line of Jesus is there because God saves sinners and that's what we all are. It doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. It doesn't matter what you bring to the table. God is not ashamed to be the Savior of a broken and messed up people. That is His specialty. Their Savior, the Savior of broken and messed up people, has skeletons in His own closet. Names that many wish would be forgotten. They're in His line, and they're right out here for the whole world to see. With zeal, with passion, with desire and intent and joy, He saves sinners. He is not ashamed of us. He is not ashamed of you this morning. Be at peace, believer. Be at peace, you who desire to come to Jesus. In the line of his son four times. Scandal, 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 scandal. God turns the whole structure of how we do things on its head. I mean, do we all, is it just, does every family have people they wish, like they, 
you know. Right? Don't bring in that. No, don't invite them, please. Don't invite them. Right? We all have that. We all know that. And sometimes it's much worse. Sometimes it's, there's real hurt and real wounds and names that we wish would be forgotten that would be wiped from the record. God turns the whole structure of how we do things on its head. He doesn't clean up the story to make it look a certain way. He saves sinners and makes them new. What did Jesus say? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God just receives sinners and eats with them and saves them. His mercy is greater. His love is stronger. We tend to be ashamed of one another. We don't want that here. That makes us look bad. Don't, I don't want to be associated with this. Jesus never says that. God is not ashamed. We get obsessed with others' pasts. God forgives our pasts. Gives us a seat at His table and welcomes us into His family. So I wonder if that's the reason when God is inspiring this text to Matthew, He says, oh, you put in Tamar. You put in Ruth and Rahab and Bathsheba. I want those names in my son's story. Jesus will not be tainted by his past. Jesus will transcend his past and ours too. Because he's the redeemer. He'll make everything new. He'll purify the line. Jesus makes us clean. You should come to him. You should believe on him. Not because I say so. Who am I? Because of who He is, you should come. You should come. Why would we reject Him? Why would we ever reject Jesus? This genealogy is about Jesus saving sinners. It's about Jesus changing the world and redeeming us back from the dead. Back from our pasts. Back from our baggage. Sinners, one and all. Everybody in the room. He came for you. For you. That's what Jesus gets us. That's who He is for us. He brings us into the family of God. He trumps our history. He trumps our pasts and makes us a bona fide child of the one true, living, holy, infinite God. Truly the King, the one who sits on David's throne, is the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed, both Jews and Gentiles. No power of hell, no scheme of ours, no sin of ours can ever succeed against God's sovereign will. That's what the genealogy is proving. right? What God purposes, He will bring about. It doesn't matter what's going on down here. He will bring it about. And nowhere is that more clear than in the line of Jesus Christ. Right Through Abraham's wanderings, to David's rise and fall, to Israel's rebellion, its exile and return, God was moving history on His watch. Working to bring His Son into the world, and nothing and nobody, no matter what it was, could ever hope to stop Him. That's the reality this morning. That's the reality every year. He wins. He just wins. He's reigning now. You see, beloved, He survived the scandal. He survived it. He survived the cross right, where He took all that scandal on Himself. All that scandal on Himself. He stands living and victorious right now to redeem everyone who calls on Him. Everyone. The name popping in your head, not them. Yes, them. You and I, me, 
If I'm allowed to preach without lightning coming through this ceiling and you know singeing me alive every Sunday, He can save you. This is for all of us. If He didn't come, if Jesus didn't come, if what it is that we happen to remember ceremonial like this on Christmas, which is fine and beautiful, I love it, but if this didn't happen, if what we're celebrating didn't happen, love, hope, joy, peace, they're mockeries. They mean nothing. What good is any of that if death can't be undone? But death can be undone. Why? Well, because of this genealogy. Because history culminated in a man named Jesus Christ. And nothing and nobody could stop it. Nobody. The ancestor's record, it doesn't ultimately matter. Like I said, it's out here for all the world to see. Jesus came anyway. Right? When God was watching that happen with Tamar, Jesus was on deck. Right? When all that happened in all of Israel's wanderings every day, the day was coming. The day was coming. When they took them away to Babylon, it was not the end of the story. He was coming. He was coming. We've sinned against Him. We've sinned against Him. When we sin, we sin against God. And like I said, if you've, if you've never done anything bad except withhold the right amount of worship, we're all guilty in the exact same way. We don't avoid God by pretending He isn't there. But this God whom we've offended, beloved, has sent a Redeemer for us, His own Son. And it, it, He did it because He wanted to do it. That's one of those amazing things about God. So holy, so blazingly holy and distinct. Right? It, it, iniquity can't come near Him. So the design He sets up to remedy that is salvation. It was His idea. His design. It wasn't like Jesus got in front of His father and said, no, 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 you, you got to calm down. Let me go down there and try to fix this and then it will... No, no, no. This was God's design. With zeal. Go. Go rescue my people. So am I one of His people? Do you believe? Will you believe? Then be at peace. Be at peace. You belong to Him. You belong to Him. In the midst of normal, everyday, messed up people like us. Understand that. He sent His Son right into that. On purpose. And the virgin birth and all that went around it with Mary and Joseph. You talk about scandal. My goodness. I mean, could you imagine Mary trying to tell Joseph the first time? Hey, listen, um, I'm pregnant, but... um. Uh, it was uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Matt, the scandal, beloved, her parents all... The, the, I mean, understand, that God is not running from this. I think God undoes it to say, look, I can save. Let me handle it. I'm bigger than this. I'm bigger than everything you bring to the table. I'm bigger than every mess. I'm bigger than every whisper behind your back. I'm bigger than everything that's attached to your name. I'm bigger. I'm better. I will save Come to me.
See God's mercy here, His faithfulness. See the lives He was moving His plan of redemption through. Right? See His sovereignty, everything moving, person after person, story after story, and He reigns over it all, even down to the details. You can't plan the end and not plan the means. Believers, we have to understand this morning that even as we struggle, our lives are wrapped up in the success and the perfection of Jesus for us. And when I say even as we struggle, I mean the mundane, everyday struggles that we think are nowhere on the radar. They're just evidences of how short we fall of glory. No, no, no. In that, He's a Savior. In those things, He's a Savior. And He's a perfect Savior. And a sufficient Savior. And a willing Savior. God's plan of salvation endured from the garden, through Noah, through Abraham, through David, through the exile. And then God sent His Son into little Mary's belly through the Holy Spirit, and the light shined, it will never go out. It will never go out. He came and lived and died a ransom for sinners, and He rose from the grave victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and our pasts, and our baggage, and our stories, and our names. That's what happens at the end. You realize that. When all is said and done, we get new names. And He knows what they are because He's going to give them to us. Then God took him back into heaven where he stands right now. Or seated right now. The only time you see him standing that I am aware of is when Stephen prays to him as he's being killed. Don't think that you can bring anything to the table this morning that will surprise God. (laughs) He's seen it all and then some. He came to save sinners, beloved. He came to redeem rooms full of people like us. Stadiums full of people like us. Don't doubt. Don't fear this morning. God is mighty to save. He's able to do it. And He loves to do it. God was excited to send Jesus into the world. No matter how dark your life can get no matter how far from him you might feel no matter how many times in our lives we might look up and say to him what are you doing he remains faithful faithful beloved there's one promise keeper in the universe it's him faithful to the end and he will come again He will come again. We wait like Simeon and Anna and them. We wait, but He will come. He will come. He sent Him to us. He can come and get you. We all have the same right to come to the table this morning. None. But Christ has provided the way of salvation. He is the way of salvation. Come and know His worth. Come and know how sufficient and strong He is. There's a reason that His name is Jesus. It's because He would save His people from their sins. Let me pray as June comes. Father, I thank You so much for 
you sending your son Jesus Christ to us. And this morning I pray that we would receive him with open arms. God, I ask that you would have your way in every heart this morning, that everybody would be able in these next few moments to consider Jesus and everyone to find him more worth believing than anything or anyone else. This I ask for the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Amen. The front is open if you want to come. I'll be down front before we take the Lord's Supper. If you want to follow Jesus, you can show that if you'd like to this morning by coming forward and telling me and we'll pray. If you'd like to become a member of our church, you can come this morning also and speak with me down at the front. But now is the time. Now is the time. Jesus is ready to save and he's able to save anytime and anywhere you call on him, whether you come down to the front or not. So let's sing together.